would invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Several weeks ago, we began a series through this New Testament letter to the Romans. Last week, we looked at verses 16 and 17. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 18 all the way down to verse 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. In 2013, there was a controversy that took place regarding the modern and very popular hymn, In Christ Alone. A hymn committee from the Presbyterian Church USA, it's a mainline liberal denomination, wanting to include this hymn in their newest hymn book. However, with one caveat. They wanted to change the wording in the second verse. The second verse, part of the second verse reads, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The hymn committee wanted to change it to read, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And much to the chagrin of the hymn committee, the hymn's authors, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty, said no. Why did you just say amen? Why were they so insistent upon that slight change? After all, the recommendation was still theologically true. On the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God is magnified. Why insisting upon saying the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, Keith Getty gave the response. This is what he said. He said, we believe altering the lyrics would remove an essential part of the gospel story as explained throughout scripture. The main thread of what we see revealed throughout the Old and New Testament is the need for man to be made right with God. The provided path toward reconciliation came through Christ's predetermined and perfect sacrifice on the cross, satisfying God's wrath once and for all. We wanted to explore the scope of the gospel message in one song. As people in the pew sing in Christ alone, we pray they understand the many attributes of God, his sovereign power, his grace, love, justice, and wrath, and how all of them are intertwined. And we shouldn't turn away from exploring his wrath because through understanding God's righteous anger towards sin, we understand his desire for justice and peace. Well, the idea of God's wrath has been one that has caused many to push away. It just seems too harsh. It seems too strong. Instead of wanting to think about the wrath of God, people definitely more, much more drawn to the love of God, but really you cannot separate God's attributes like that. They all are intertwined. They, Keith Getty had it right. I love it when there are theologically minded, biblically grounded people that write hymns or other songs of praise to God. They, they understand the gospel. Friends, it's only when we see the reality of man's sinfulness and God's wrath against sin do we really begin to see the beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
With that in mind, I want us to read now, hear from God's word as it's read, Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a very sobering passage of scripture. And in what we see in this lengthy argument that Paul unfolds here is the fact that we desperately need God's righteousness that he talked about in verse 16 and 17 because we are all rightly the objects of God's wrath. So our passage today explores this a bit more. In fact, what you're going to see in verses 18 through 32 is really an ongoing argument that Paul makes just unpacking for us the, the, the reality of human depravity. He does that from verse 18 all the way to chapter three, verse 20. So we're gonna see this, but here this morning we're focusing in on this passage. And we're gonna look at three important aspects of God's wrath as it's detailed here in this text today. We're gonna to see God's wrath revealed, God's wrath initiated, what causes it, and God's wrath displayed. What does it look like? God's wrath revealed, God's wrath initiated, and God's wrath displayed. Let's look first of all at God's wrath revealed. We see that in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here in one sentence, one statement, Paul summarizes the reality concerning the universal reality of human sinfulness. One, one overarching sentence, one overarching phrase, Paul just summarizes it quite well. Here's the problem. In fact, if you go back to verses 16 and 17, 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteous shall live by faith. Why? For the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and unrighteousness of men. There's a problem. Paul begins to expose the problem and he begins to untangle for us the the predicament that we all are in and under. Friends, for the good news to truly be good, you need to understand what you've been saved from. Sometimes I think, and I think I'm prone to think this way, if I'm not truly cherishing the gospel, I'm just kind of assuming or presuming upon God's grace, I can guarantee you what's going on in my heart at that point in time is that I have really lost sight of the gravity of my own sin and the offense against God that it brings. And what Paul is doing here, he's going to get to the riches of God's grace and we're gonna see that as we begin in chapter four, five, six, seven, eight and on. We're gonna see this beautiful gift of grace that God gives, but friends, he's gonna set the stage for that as he really helps us dig in and understand the, the problem that exists that's universal in scope. He begins here by saying, the wrath of God is revealed. When we think about that, we need to first of all even ask, what is God's wrath? And we need to be careful not to confuse it with human wrath. Human wrath is characterized by a loss of self-control or irrational outburst of anger. Right? That's what human wrath is. You see this outburst of anger. Human wrath. I just saw an article of a coach, in high school football coach in Tennessee that just was recently fired this weekend because he went on a uh, profanity-laced tirade against his football team in the locker room this past Friday night. That's wrath. That's human wrath. Irrational, uncontrolled anger. Sinful. God's wrath is different. As J.I. Packer put it in his classic work, Knowing God, God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath is righteous anger. It is right and necessary. It's not irrational. It's not uncontrolled. It is right, his right response to sin. Listen, one cannot have a right view of God's holiness and not also have a right view of God's wrath. This wrath, we're told, is revealed from heaven. Notice, by the way, the present tense, is revealed. Meaning the wrath of God, a lot of times we're thinking future, right? The, the, the separation of the righteous and unrighteous, that God's wrath is coming, and it is. But it's also a present reality. That's really one of the points he's making throughout this whole passage. We see the wrath of God played out and fleshed out in our present day. So God's wrath revealed. We know that it's, it's his right response to sin. It's not an outburst of uncontrolled anger, sinful anger. God can't sin. It's his right response to sin. And it's being revealed even now in the present. 
But what causes it? What brings it about? Which leads me really to the second point where we see God's wrath initiated. See that in the second part of verse 18, all the way down really to the re- throughout the rest of the chapter, but we see it here in these early, uh, chapter eight, or verse 18 down to verse 23, and then we'll, we'll look at the rest later. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness, it says, and unrighteousness of men. Why? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Truth suppressors. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, God's wrath is initiated because man has rejected God's revelation. God revealed himself. That's what we mean when we say God's revelation. He's revealed himself. He's made himself known. And while God has made himself known, man, humanity, and this is universal, has taken the truth about God that is known and suppressed it and really exchanged it for something else. Notice the text. Who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has revealed himself in a couple of ways. We often, scholars talk about two primary ways that God reveals himself when they talk about general revelation. God has revealed himself in the creation. You can look around and see just in what God has created that there is a creator and that he is powerful and that he's worthy of worship. That's general revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. God has specifically and especially revealed himself in all that he is and his character and his plan for humanity and the problem that we have and his answer to that problem right here in the scriptures. We're not talking about special revelation here in Romans. We're talking about general revelation. It's what he's referring to, creation being a worldwide public display that there is a God and that he is powerful. He's made it known clearly. So recently, I know that there has been a a new fad that's made its way here to Southern Maryland. It's called an escape room. How many of you have been to the escape room? No one yet. Oh, one, back in the back. That's nice. I'm trying to convince our home group that'd be a good fellowship time together. (laughs) The goal in an escape room is to take a group of people, could be a group that you like or you don't like, but a group of people You get locked into a room together and then you're given a set amount of time to try to figure out how to get out of the room. And in order to to find your way out of the room, there are certain clues in that room that you have to take and put together to try to find the way out. And if you don't do it under a set amount of time, then you lose, I guess. So the answer is in the room, but it's hidden. Only through clues, though, can you find out how to get out. Now, some might be tempted to think about God's self-revelation in that way, and that would be wrong. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying God has given us clues, and if you're smart enough to figure it out, then, oh, yeah, there's a God. That's not what the text says. Not like an escape room where God's just kind of sprinkled clues out there and, good luck, hope you figure me out. Paul says... For what can be known about God is 
plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, are put out there like clues in an escape room. No, have been clearly perceived. It's clear. God's glory is on display. I think it was Calvin that said that the creation is the theater of God's glory. You look around and, and you can see that there is a God and that he is powerful and that he is at, his attributes are on display. Friends, the fact that there's a God is abundantly clear. You don't have to piece clues together. The reality that there's a God is fully displayed. But what Paul's saying is that in our unrighteousness, in our rebellion against the creator, we suppress that truth. We take what is clear and what is true and we reject it, but we, we really suppress it. That's, our, that's how we reject it. We, we suppress it. We push it down. Try to keep it at, at bay. Not only do we suppress the truth, we exchange it for something else. Look at verses 21 and following. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Notice that. For although they knew God, because things have been clearly perceived. God has made it known. They knew him. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Friends, the reality is, is that you can go across all, all over this world and you will find everywhere you go people worshiping something. Why is that? We're born worshipers. What happens though is because of sin is we, we suppress the reality of the true creator and we begin worshiping created things instead. We've rejected God's revelation by suppressing it and exchanging it for something else. Really, this is a, a rejection of worship. It's a, it's, a, it's a failure to worship God, honor him and give thanks to him, the text says. But I want you to notice also in this that man is accountable for God's revelation. We've rejected it, suppressed it, exchanged it, and now we're accountable. Notice verse 20. Go back to verse 20 at the end, the last little part there. It says, so they are without excuse. Who is without excuse? They. Who's they? Those who are unrighteous. Romans 3, verse 20, or verse 10, excuse me, says, no one or none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That would mean when you start to think of all of what Paul's revealing here in, 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 in special revelation about God through his inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we begin to see quite clearly that all of us fall under this category of unrighteous. God has revealed himself so that everyone can know that he exists, but this knowledge isn't, while it's not enough to save you, it is enough to condemn you. That's why he says, so they were without excuse. And oftentimes we'll hear people say, well, something like, well, what about the innocent person who's never heard of God? Surely God would not punish such a person. The problem is that according to this passage and other places, there is no innocent person. 
God's power is on display and we've rejected it by suppressing and exchanging it, not acknowledging him or giving thanks to him. So God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the ungodly and the unrighteous, but not because we've merely just rejected the truth, but we've rejected it by suppressing and exchanging it. The truth about God has been clearly known, made known, but the ungodly, the unrighteous, which is all of us, have refused to recognize God for who he is and give him thanks. This is the problem. This is the great problem of humanity. Friends, when we suppress something, when we suppress the knowledge of something we have, something, we have a knowledge of something, we suppress it, we're not forgetting it. It's not as if, oh, I didn't realize there was a God. Well, I guess I knew at one point, but I forgot. No, it's clear. It's been made known. We've suppressed it and exchanged it. We see that in verse 25. Suppressing the truth, listen, Suppressing the truth about God does not lead to atheism. When you say, okay, God's made himself known and all of us in our unrighteousness have suppressed that truth, we've rejected it, rejected him by suppressing the truth and turning to worship other, it's not atheism. You're not all of a sudden saying there is no God. Suppressing the truth about God does not lead to atheism, it leads to idolatry. It leads to false worship. It leads to confused worship. It leads to perverted worship. It leads to something else. You don't cease worshiping. You turn that worship and you say, well, I can find atheists in the world that don't believe in a God. Well, they worship themselves. They worship science. They're worshiping. They're bowing down to something. The suppression, we notice, goes from bad to worse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him, verse 21, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Already unrighteous, they're already rejected by suppressing and now as a result of that, it just continues to snowball. And all are without excuse. Friends, no one, no one will be able to stand before God when that day comes and claim ignorance. God, I didn't know. No one will be able to say that. So we see that it's revealed, the wrath of God is revealed. We see the cause of that. It's unrighteous men, unrighteous humanity, taking the truth that has been clearly been made known of, of God, suppressing it and exchanging it for something else. Which leads me to number three, God's wrath displayed. In verses 23 through 32, you're gonna notice a cycle that happens three times. It's repeated three different times. A cycle that, that's there in the passage. And, it, and basically, you could summarize it this way. There's a refusal to acknowledge God, suppression of that truth. God gives those people over to their sin and the things that they desire. And then number three, we act out the things that we desire in ungodly and unnatural ways. So God's truth is known. We refuse it, suppress it. God gives us over to the things that we desire and those things only continue to snowball and increase 
as we act them out in unnatural ways. Look at verses 23 and 24. Claiming, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. There's the suppression for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. There's the idolatry. God's clear display, his, his, his um, self-revelation is on display in creation. We've said, no, that's not good enough. We don't believe that. We're suppressing it. We're exchanging you for something else. It's like you're taking God back to get something else you'd prefer instead. So they exchanged the glory of God the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. Therefore, God gave them up. That phrase, God gave them up three times, you'll see that repeated. Verse 24, verse 26. God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So they've exchanged God, God gives them up, and they go on acting in unnatural ways. You see it repeated again in verse 25 through 27. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, verse 23, they've exchanged the glory of God. Now they're exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women and men exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Then you see it again in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So this cycle, God has clearly revealed himself. We don't acknowledge that. We suppress it. God gave them up and they continue to act out this rejection of God in unnatural and ungodly ways. It's redirected worship. Friends, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that when we refuse to acknowledge and worship God, we will then worship anything. You are not worship neutral. When you reject God and suppress the truth about him, you exchange what is true about him for something else. And you're willing to worship anything at that point. You say, well, I know people, they say they don't believe in God, but they don't don't worship idols. You can't go to their house and see like this carved snake that they're bowing down to. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. I want you to notice though that when it says God gave them up, that is actually in the past tense. It's referring to something God has already done. One of the things that we see from this passage is as a result of our suppression of the truth about God, what happens when God has made himself clearly known and we say, no, thank you, and we exchange it for something else, what happens is that God will eventually turn over those people to their own desires as a form of judgment. And he's already done that. Humanity has rejected the truth of who God is and have bowed down. So Paul's writing this and in the time in which he wrote it, and he's already writing in the past tense, he's, he's basically saying this is the problem of humanity since sin entered the world. God has made himself known. We've rejected him by suppressing the truth about him and exchanging it for something else, and we become idolaters. And God said, okay, if that's what you want, then I will give you what you want. 
Theologians call that judicial abandonment. John MacArthur said the major point of Romans 1, verse 24 through 32 is that when men persistently abandon God, God will abandon them. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his work called The Problem of Pain. He said, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. So in essence, the wrath of God is being displayed by giving us over to further rebellious acts. He condemns our sin by turning us over to be further enslaved to sin. So friends, listen, when you look around the culture that you're part of, by the way, and you see all of the sin and all of the depravity and all of the chaos and all of the brokenness and all of the yuckiness and all of, the, all of that stuff that just is broken and wrong that you're part of, this is not just sin awaiting God's future judgment. The fact that it exists and it continues to increase is actually a form of God's judgment. It is a manifestation of God's present wrath to see these sins continue to multiply over and over and over again and to increase in their intensity. There are two groups of sins that Paul lists here. In verse 26, we see a reference here to sexual sin. Verse 26, he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. And then he goes on to further define this by illustrating what he means by referring to homosexual activity. So in essence, is Paul's saying, because of their rejection, because of their suppression, suppression, because they've exchanged the truth about God, I give you exhibit A as an example of what this looks like when I give people over to what they want, homosexuality. He doesn't do that because it's a worse sin than others. He's just illustrating his point. A rejection of God doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to further bondage. Now, I'm not going to spend the rest of my sermon trying to convince you that homosexuality is wrong. I think the Bible is crystal clear on that. Just like with certain heterosexual sin, homosexuality is clearly condemned as sinful in the scriptures. Paul is simply using it here as an example of what happens when people are left to their own desires. Unnatural things happen that go against the created order. So left to ourselves, God says, okay, if that's what you want, if you want to suppress the truth about me, if you want to reject me, I will give you what you want. You can continue to live enslaved to your own sins and passions. And so left, it, left to ourselves, everything, everything gets turned upside down. But why does Paul use this as an example? Does he reference the homosexual relationship as an example. Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he use heterosexual sin or something else? And it's not singled out because it's somehow worse than other sins. But rather, Paul is using it here because it serves as one of the clearest evidences of a rejection of God's order of things. 
And in order to see that, I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. We see in verse 31 and 32, Paul is talking about there this relationship between wives and husbands. And then he concludes in verse 31 by quoting Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this amazing thing. This is the passage we go to to talk about marriage, right? Well, really his point is he's illustrating something else by pointing to marriage. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. See, there in Ephesians, Paul makes clear that the heterosexual union of a man and a woman in marriage serves as a picture of God's covenant relationship with his people between Christ and the church. The man representing Jesus and the woman in that passage representing the church. He says when a husband and wife come together, it is a beautiful thing because it's ultimately illustrating this covenant relationship between Jesus and his bride. But when we reject God and we suppress the truth about him, we are given over to various desires. So we could say it this way, a heterosexual union is the most vivid illustration of the relationship between Christ and his people and the intimate heart worship that results. Whereas a homosexual union is the most vivid illustration of those who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and disordered and, and, and brought about this disordering, this unnatural existence in our relationship to God. We could say just as the heterosexual union points to the beauty of Christ and his church, a homosexual union highlights the disordering or false worship that happened due to our suppression of the truth. Now an argument you'll often hear from the LGBTQ community is that they believe that that is how God has made them. And there's a lot that we need to talk about. And I pray that you, and I say this as a pastor, knowing that many of you have family members or friends, maybe even some of you in this room, who struggle with same-sex attraction. The last thing that you need to do is write such a person off. Listen to what Sam Alberry said. He is a pastor in England, single guy, struggles with same-sex attraction. He doesn't live that life, so he struggles with it. He's remained celibate and single. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And this is what he says based on Romans 1. Paul's point in Romans 1 is that our nature as we experience it is not natural as God intended it. Why is that? Because we suppress the truth. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for the things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. Friends, that's a brother that struggles with this sin. And he's saying, God has not made me this way, that sin has. It's the same for you, heterosexual people that struggle with pornography or struggle in living in infidelity or struggle with premarital sex. It's the same. Sin has distorted all, it's wrecked us all. 
So when we reject God and exchange him for something else, we're, we end up doing things that we're not naturally designed and created to do. And all he's saying is that a homosexual relationship is exhibit A to that. It's not the worst problem of humanity. It's not the worst sin. It, you could just list a heterosexual problem. There as much as that, but, but it serves as the most vivid illustration of that. Friends, homosexual behavior along with unlimited other sins will incur God's judgment. But listen, Paul's point that he's making here is that it's actually a form of God's judgment presently. The reality of its existence is a form of God's judgment and wrath now, giving people over to what they desire. We need an entire other sermon to talk about how we're to minister to those caught up with an assortment of sexual sins, homosexuality included. We do that with compassion and concern and in gospel faithfulness. Christians have wrongly responded to this community, LGBT community and others, either by ostracizing them as if somehow they're worse and they're not, or by sanctioning their behavior as something God approves of, which he doesn't. Friends, we can do neither. Gospel people move toward sinners because guess what? So are you. So are you. So am I. So am I. So he highlights sexual sin because of its vivid illustration, primarily there with homosexuality, but also verse 28, all other sins. Christians all the time take Romans 1 and just want to browbeat homosexual behavior, and they forget that there's other verses here that include basically everyone else. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he lists that lengthy list there, which every single one of us can find ourselves in. Paul goes on to point to other sins that take place among people who have been given over to their own desires. This is a list that all of us are in because all of us, friends, are born into this world as those who are unrighteous, ungodly people who have by, by our own will have suppressed the knowledge of God and replaced it with something else that we think is better. John Piper put it this way, he said, the root of all our problems in this world is that the human race has exchanged the glory of God for other things and God has handed us over to bear the fruit of this exchange in 10,000 troubles. So friends, when you look around at sin and you look at your own sin and your own, just how you're enslaved, oftentimes it seems to it. Friends, many times in the world, that's, that's just a demonstration of God giving you what you want. That's all Paul is saying here. All of these behaviors, all of these activities are like a neon light shining in a dark alley, pointing to the fact that we have all thrown God aside and are right objects of his anger, his wrath. All of us, every single one of us in this room, right objects of God's wrath. So what are we to do? Is there any hope? Yes. 
there is a great hope. There is wonderful hope. I want you to hear what Paul says to his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Stop right there. Go back to Romans chapter one and see this is how that unfolded. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. Then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Friends, God's wrath is real and fully deserved. Let that reality settle in your heart. It is real and fully deserved. And yet God in his kindness has given us hope because of what he has given us in Jesus Christ. And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been sanctified in Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you don't know what it means to walk in fellowship with the Lord The reality is, is that you're under God's present wrath, just as all of us were. And what awaits those who continue to walk in that way is is an eternal wrath that that we can't even begin to fathom. But friend, if you would simply turn from your sin and place your hope in Jesus, the promise is that he will cleanse you of all of your sin. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross where he took upon himself the wrath of God That's why it's so critical that Keith Getty said, no, it's staying in. Because God's wrath there in Christ was satisfied. His anger was satisfied once and for all for those who will trust in Jesus. You don't have to bear God's wrath. You can hope in Christ and rest as justified before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for exposing hard things, sobering realities that we need to confront. I know that the weight of a passage like this is weighty, it's it's heavy, it's sobering, it's hard to, to fathom. Lord, there's not a person in this room that isn't described in Romans 1, 18 through 32. There's not a person in this world that doesn't fall under this indictment, this universal reality. And yet God, in your great love and in your compassion and mercy, 
And in your righteousness, you paved a way for those who are the right objects of your anger to now be acceptable and lovely in your sight. God, we could never have done that. We could have never cleaned ourselves up to make ourselves acceptable to you. But God in Christ, you, you paid it all. You set us free and we thank you. God, would you help us to live not as those who are burdened by the weight and gravity of our sin, but God, as those who've been set free to walk as trophies of your grace. God, would you help us now to to cling to that hope as your people? And Father, if there's any here today that aren't clinging, Father, would you give them faith even now to cling in faith to you through Christ? We pray in his name, amen.